friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And Trey and I have a great set of magazine-length issues to talk to you about today. We're going to be talking about, of course, the continuation of the black and white Dracula mag, Dracula Lives, number four, and a continuation of the tales of Simon Garth with Tales of the Zombie, number three. But before we get there, we do need to go ahead and talk about the big news. I think you guys have all seen it on the internet at this point, especially if you follow Trey and myself or our feed. Of course, that big news is... They're making a National Treasure 3, guys! Right? Yeah! Yeah. Um, so, can, can I tell a secret? Yes. Like, n- none of you will, will rat me out or anything if I if I confess this to you. It's just It's just you and me here, right? Uh, yeah, no one listens to the show. <laughs> um, so, I've never seen a National Treasure movie. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Tomb of Ideas. <laughs> I have been James Hickson. Did I this... just cancel the show with yes, that? <laughs> I, I don't even, I'm not talking to you. Um, but I have Disney Plus, so I could watch it. Although I don't uh, think it shows, it's not showing up on Disney Plus for another couple months. True, that's true. That is true, actually. It isn't. Um, but what, you've never seen any National Treasure movies? No, not one. I, I want to. Like, I, they, they sound fun. Like, at the time, when they came out, I wrote them off because I was just kind of like, uh, this is just, like, some derivative uh, knockoff Da Vinci Code stuff. Okay. It is, but go on. <laughs> But since then, I have heard from people that I trust, like you, that they are incredibly fun, entertaining adventures in their own right. And maybe some of the best, just straight performances that Nicolas Cage has done. Oh, yeah. But, like, if you watch them as, like, a history teacher, which I am, they, they make no sense. Right, right. They're like, But that sounds like no, part of the fun. That's not how this works. That's... No. No. <laughs> but, but yes, they are really zany fun. Like, unintentionally zany, which it kind of makes me worry about a third film. Well, and the, the other thing I've read is that Cage gets more cagey in part two. Yes. And I can only hope that that trend continues with the part three that's coming. They've kind of achieved cult status at this point, so I do worry that they're going to go all in on some of the ideas and tropes that made no mm-hmm. sense. Huh. They were kind of they were very earnest in the first two, and I worry in the third they'll just go to move to just parody. Uh, yeah. Like becoming like the stereotype of what the, the movie is rather than what it ought yes. to be. Yes. Yes. Although I do look forward to Nicolas Cage stealing Donald Trump's tax returns. 
Oddly enough, he goes to Moscow for them. Who knew? Go figure. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine why. But aside from aside from the, the Nicolas Cage Disney news, uh, we also have expanded the reach of Tomb of Ideas. Yeah, we, we're, we're doing video now. So if you've watched, we did a reaction video to the new Morbius teaser, which came out last week. Right. Where we watched, well, you guys don't know how reaction videos go. We watched the trailer and reacted to it. Right. And then we, we put the handy little picture-in-picture picture thing there so you can you can see what we're seeing while we're talking about it. And and then we, we chatted a little bit before and after, just in terms of what we what we thought of that trailer. Yeah. And of course I apologize to anybody who's traumatized by my face. Oh no. Um, but yeah, the response to that has been really great. It seems a lot of you guys actually like that sort of thing, so who knows? We may see something along those lines in the future. Right. Hint, uh, hint. If you have suggestions for us, if there's something that you think would benefit from visual media as in terms of discussion, if there's something you want to watch along with us or, or see us react to or, or talk about, please let us know. Yeah, we, 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 will, we will watch things. Honestly, and, and record them. Yeah, what, what, else are, what else are we going to do in a tomb? Right, right. We pr probably should talk a little bit more about the Morbius teaser. We did talk about it in our YouTube video, which, of course, everybody who listens to this show has watched that, obviously. Sure. If you haven't, uh, go to YouTube.com and search for Cinepunks with an X. Uh, our video is on the Cinepunks YouTube feed there. Yep. But, you know, I've had more thoughts... Since we did a reaction video about yeah. the teaser. One of those thoughts is Jeff Goldblum would have made an amazing Morbius back in like the 80s or yeah, like 90s. Would. Yeah, he would. Like, if James Cameron's Spider-Man movie had happened and they were doing a sequel with Morbius. He'd have been the guy. He'd have been the guy. Like, yeah, I, I can, which, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's almost on the nose, though, because that part of the reason for that is the character of Michael Morbius is not all that different from Dr. Brundle from The Fly. No, he isn't. It is a little bit on the nose, but at the same time, I but really want to see that performance. Oh, yeah, it'd be perfect. Yes. Like, The Fly was a different sort of thing. The fly was very much about his transformation and loss of his humanity. Mm -hmm. And Morbius is still, at his heart, a hero slash supervillain. Right, right, right. The The origins are similar, and the, the beginnings of the concept are similar in terms of self-experimentation. But they go in different directions from there. Yeah. Which, I wonder... Now I'm thinking about like a Cronenberg directed Spider-Man movie with Morbius in it. <laughs> that that would be terrifying. It would be, wouldn't it? I would watch it. <laughs> like maybe from behind the sofa. <laughs> yeah, behind a sofa <laughs> underneath a sheet. Yep. 
But, yeah. But, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I think you're probably right that, that there's something to be said for that. And, and I, I said as much, at least in making a comparison, in watching the trailer, is that, the at least in the way the trailer's cut, the physical transformation of Morbius reminded me a little bit about the early stages of Goldblum's transformation in The Fly. Maybe that's where I got the idea. You're saying that there. Um, not so much in, in the performance of it, in terms of, like, dialogue or delivery or anything like that, but but in the trailer we see Morbius go from physically disabled to suddenly, like, more muscular and healthy-looking and all that, and that's sort of like how Goldblum, as he transforms initially, it, it's it's a positive, and so he's he is more buff, he's more athletic, he can do, like, the gymnastics and stuff, and it's only after that that things start to go off the rails. Yeah. Now, another idea that I think we should talk about is did Sony for back lack of a better way to put this give us too much information in a teaser trailer? I don't know. Um I, I don't know, because, like, for you and me, in terms of story, almost everything in that trailer is just known origin material, you know? Yes. The, there are a couple of surprise bits near the end, which we talked about in our video. Yeah. Maybe they, sh- maybe they should have held those back, but if they had held those back, I don't think as many people would be talking about the trailer. Which I get was the reason why they put those in there. And we still don't know the context of those 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 quick glimpses. No. We we've we've heard some rumors about how it ties into future films and spin offs and things like that. But we don't know for sure. Yeah, I suppose. Anyway, since we're talking about movies, we should probably move into Hellstrom Watch. And Trey, we actually have some Hellstrom news in Hellstrom Watch for once. Right. I can I can uh, actually give you an update direct from the senior vice president of original programming at Hulu. Uh, that's Craig Erwick. He gave an update on January 17th about uh, Hellstrom. He was speaking at a Television Critics Association event. And basically his big announcement regarding Hellstrom is that Hellstrom Drum is roll. still happening. Woo! Explosions, fireworks, cat tra- crowd goes wild. So... I can elaborate a little bit. He, he goes on to say, quote, We're in production on Hellstrom. I've seen the first four episodes of that, and I'm really excited about it. It's definitely a different corner of the Marvel Universe in terms of its horror. It's a really unique take on a horror show that has a unique family situation at the center of it. Yeah. That's a thing that he said. So it apparently is happening. Right, right. They they have four episodes made. 
which is more information than we previously had. I think we'd only heard about a pilot order. Right. And, and ongoing production. Yeah. And of like, course, some like casting character, descript- character descriptions and things. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, apparently this film, sorry, this series of Hellstrom is happening. And right. It is, it is the lone survivor of the adventure into fear slate. Yeah. Which, let's see. What else was it? That was, okay, yeah. They had Ghost Rider and they had Hellstrom. Was there anything else in there? Um, there were plans for others that hadn't made it past, like, the early pre-production stages. And we know that Foggy is kind of like, no, we want Ghost Rider for the MCU. Right. Uh, there w- Like, there was talk of maybe doing something with Brother Voodoo or Elsa Bloodstone Okay. Or or even Man Thing. Again, none of those ever made it past like the rumor stage or the the very early planning stages. But it sounds like at that point Hulu thought that or Hulu slash Marvel Television were under the impression that any of the horror characters were fair game because the MCU wasn't using them at that point. Then Blade happened. Right. Which I don't think anybody really expected. I think Blade, they made the deal for Blade like a week before D23. Right, right. Basically, Feige can do whatever he wants. Right. Although we should probably talk about a somewhat significant shakeup in the MCU. Now, since we're here right. and talking about Hellstrom Watch, of course, that is um, Doctor Strange 2 lost its director. Right, so Scott Derrickson has left the production uh, due to creative differences with Marvel slash Disney. Yes. Slash Kevin Feige. (laughs) Yes. And I don't know that it's cause for worry, because this happens, especially with big franchise stuff, especially with Disney franchises. But it's disappointing just because I like Derrickson's work, both on Doctor Strange 1 and in other things that he's worked on. That also means that his uh, co-writer, C. Robert Cargill, is also off the movie. Uh, So, you know, it's it's, it's disappointing, but I don't know that it's necessarily the end of the world. But, of course, the rumor, or at least the assumption everybody is making online, and again, this is the internet, guys, take everything for a grain of salt, is that it's because... Uh, he was trying to go for too much of a horror slant. Right. And and you can go back and see the announcements that were happening around the time they first went public with the movie. And and Derrickson was very upfront about, I want to make the most horror-centered MCU movie yet. And at the same time, Feige is right there next to him trying to, like, walk that back. Yeah, we want to make a movie that you can bring 12-year-olds to. Well, and and he never said he was aiming for R. No. In fact, I think it's fair to say that you can do a horror, especially a horror superhero movie, without it being R. What was Monster Monster Squad rated? Uh, Probably PG. I think that was before PG-13 was a thing. And that is one of the most violent, homophobic kids' movies I've ever seen. PG-13. Okay, so it must have been right after 
that rating was introduced. Yeah. Although we do love that movie. Oh no, I and I love I love things about that movie. I I have the Blu-ray. I I watch the movie every so many years, but it's one that some of its 80s-ness has not aged well. You know? Yeah. And at the same time, I've also not let my daughter watch it. So Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like and like I say the thing that the thing that I find especially shocking from a modern point of view from a you know 21st century point of view is the language yeah there's a lot of shit and mostly the homophobic slurs are what bother me oh yeah those are bad too that that's that's what like within the first like 20 minutes they're throwing language around that is just shocking to contemporary sensibilities yeah, it stinks of the 1980s for 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 a good bit. Well, it also stinks of uh 1980s Shane Black. Oh yeah, that is his thing, isn't it? He he wrote it, yeah. Oh. Oh Shane Black. Yep. Yep. He of Iron Man 3 fame and <laughs> infamy? Right, right. But anyway, like so Point taken. Like you can do PG thirteen horror adventure, and and make it work. Yeah, I I can see that now. The other the other rumor I've seen is that suddenly with the Fox deal, all of these characters and possibilities became available. That suddenly Feige wanted to use in Doctor Strange two, that Derrickson was either not on board with or had not originally planned for. And he was kind of like, well, I'd like to stick with my original idea, if I could. Right. I think we talked last episode about, you know, the possibility of Deadpool coming in yeah, to and, that film. And I think that's still, you know, a possibility. I think there are other characters from the Fox deal that are maybe more likely there. At least yeah. in terms of having a significant presence. Yeah, and... I mean, we also got the final trailer for New Mutants that came out last week. And apparently that is happening, despite the least expectations on on my part. I I will believe it when I have a ticket and am seated in the movie theater. You you really think they'd they'd pull it that quickly? I, I, I don't, but I'm just... It's been so long since that movie was finished... That I am just shocked that they're putting in theaters. Okay. That makes sense. I, I'm curious to see it. The trailer looked good. Like, surprisingly good. So it de- definitely has some horror elements to it. Yeah, yeah. And they're releasing it, but they're not releasing it under the MCU banner, of course. Right, there was some confusion about that, actually. Yeah, some people on the internet took interviews the wrong way. Well, that and uh, there was a newsletter for D23, the Disney fan club, that they, they evidently sent out a draft before it was finished or before, you know, the right people had looked at it. And the, the first version that was posted referred to New Mutants as an MCU movie. Yeah, and, that's, then, they, that's... and then they had to very quickly put out a new version that, that removed that reference. Yeah, guys. Okay. Kevin Feige is not going to bring 
mutants into the MCU with a freaking New Mutants movie that he didn't fabricate from start to finish. Right, right. Kevin Feige's not that guy. No. Kevin Feige's not going to see some some other person's creation that he didn't have like his hands in the whole time and be like, yes, yes, this is how I build on this new branch to this huge franchise that I control. Right. That's not who this guy is. Like, uh, we are lucky we get the Spider-Man Sony deal. Well, and even then, it's with the caveat that he gets some sort of producer credit. Yes. I don't believe he's getting any kind of credit on New Mutants, although that could change no. between now and then. Oh. Oh. Oh? So we also have, this is not film-related, but we have some new comics news as of today. Oh, wow. And that is that... Marvel is launching a new Werewolf by Night miniseries this year. What? Yeah. Who's writing it? What's the what's the sitch? So, story by Taboo of the Black Eyed Peas. Uh-oh. Uh, co-written by Benjamin Jackendoff and uh I guess Taboo is the co-writer and then artist is uh Scott Eaton. Okay. They're tying it into Native American mythology. Okay. And so the story will involve Native American hero Red Wolf tracking the werewolf and helping him with the the werewolf curse. Okay, I can kind of get behind this. It it sounds kind of cool, actually. Although it it, it sounds like it's as much a Red Wolf miniseries as it is a Werewolf by Night, but they're using the Werewolf by Night title for the, the book. Because, like, Red Wolf is one of those Roy Thomas obscure creations that is actually a lot of fun. Right. So, they just chucked him at Werewolf by Night, and we'll see where that goes. Okay. And and, and the taboo, in addition to having a famous name that they can sell, has Native American her- heritage. And so that's sort of the hook as far as bringing in the Red Wolf character, is that he's getting to sort of explore his own sort of heritage through this fictional character. Okay. Alright. So it won't be, like, massively condescending Native Americans, hopefully. That That's... I would I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, so, Werewolf by Night miniseries coming from Marvel this year. Oh, it looks like it might not be Jack Russell, though. Ah. So, it, a new young werewolf is, is the, the title character. Okay, so definitely sounds like it might not be Jack Russell. But yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Jack Russell does show up at some right, point. Right, right. And, and it, they're they're sticking to the original concept in that it's like a 17-year-old kid who gets turned into a werewolf unexpectedly. Okay. All right. But well, yeah, I, mean, I guess the last time we saw Jack Russell, he was one of the Howling Commandos. Oh, goodness. Speaking of things we'll get to eventually... Uh, <laughs> We'll be right back with our coverage of Tales of the Zombie, number three, right after this message. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994, or 1944, or maybe 2994. Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis? And how will history be changed for those that do? 
Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Do you really think this is going to fix my computer? Want to fix your computer automatically? Go online to McAfee.com. Welcome back to Tomb Leaders, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. As we talked about earlier in the show, we do have two black and white mammoth magazines for you. Uh, with the first one being Tales of the Zombie number three. And before we start this trade, I just want to say, Happy New Year. Oh, um, Happy New Year to you. Because, of course, with this issue, we do start our coverage of January 1974. You're right. We are into 74. That That's exciting. Yeah, at least the cover date is January 1974. It probably actually sure. came out a little bit like, say, November. Of sure. Yeah, no, we're we are, we are still probably well in the midst of, like, Thanksgiving 73. Yeah. Hold on. Is Nixon still president? When did Nixon... Uh, Nixon resigned August 8th, right? I think so. Yeah, but let me check. 1973... August 9th, 74, was when he resigned. Okay, so I was a year off. Bad history teacher, bad. So we are still in the midst of his final full year, I yeah, guess. we're still in the midst of Watergate at this point. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the congressional investigations are happening and all that. That's right, because in the Morbius issue, last time, they were they, talking They about, name drop. They name drop Watergate. Yeah, okay, see, history brain fart. Please excuse <laughs> me. Well, I mean, if you just kept up with your Marvel continuity. <laughs> anyway, our first story in this magazine issue is When the Gods Crave Flesh. Writer on this one is Steve Gerber. Artist and inker is Pablo Marcos. Letterer is Typeset. Hmm. Editor is Roy Thomas. The unliving thing that walks that was once Simon Garth stands alone in a Haitian swamp when he's set upon by a viper. The zombie makes short work of the venomous creature, crushing it in his powerful dead hands. Nearby, at the estate of Anton Cartier, Cartier? Hmm. the wealthy Anton watches Simon's daughter, Donna, dance in the rain and mulls when he must reveal to the beautiful young woman the horrible fate of her father. Yet, before he could decide to do so, his thoughts are interrupted by a phone call from aspiring young filmmaker Bruce Mason. Bruce and his beautiful wife Moira have just arrived at the island and hope Anton might make good his previous offer introducing Bruce to the island's voodoo community, as young Mr. Mason plans to make a film about them. The three plan to meet the next morning at Anton's estate, where Donna takes an immediate liking to the handsome Bruce. 
Anton explains to filmmakers that their request might be a hard one to meet as many of the local voodoo practitioners do not allow their photo be taken for fear the camera will steal their soul. Moira scoffs at this as savage superstition and tells Bruce he best make his film or risk losing her forever. That night at the ceremony, the Hungan refuses their request to film but still invites them to observe and take part in the ceremony. Unbeknownst to the others, however, Moira sneaks to a hiding place to film in secret. Alas, the mechanical wear of the camera angers the spirit summoned by the ceremony, forcing them to flee and almost killing the voodoo priestess and the congregants. As punishment, the priestess ties Moira to a stake so that the spirits may punish her as they like. As a result, the beautiful young wife is melted into a hideous mess. Bruce begs the priestess reverse the curse, offering himself as a zombie slave in return. However, the ceremony to turn young Mr. Mason into a zombie is interrupted by our zombie, Simon Garth, who has been watching for the shadows and is unwilling to let another share his fate. After wrecking the place, the man that was Simon Garth disappears once again in the jungle, this time followed by the mutilated Moira. The two walk until dawn, and while standing on a cliff overlooking the sea, the woman begs the undead creature to end her suffering. Simon Garth complies by snapping her neck and casting her into the sea. In the final panel, we see that she has once again been allowed to resume her former beauty in death. So, I do like that Jericho Drum is listed as a technical advisor for this issue. That's really clever. Yeah, that's of course referencing the Brother Voodoo character that we talked about last issue. Right. Although, I am a little bit upset that some poor bastard led this issue and didn't receive any credit, because this is not typeset. No, no, it doesn't look like it. I have seen comics lettered by typeset, and this is not it. Right. Some poor guy lettered this comic and received no credit. Yeah, that, that sucks. But uh, what do you think about the story overall? So, I, I think it's a solid continuation of Simon Garth's story. First off, I love this Pablo Marcos art. Yeah, the artwork's really great. That splash page at the beginning with the title and the, the full page uh, or, or full panel Simon Garth standing in the cave that's that's just gorgeous yes it is uh i i do think um if you will permit me to do the worst french pronunciation this side of remy lebeau i believe the character's name is anton cartier anton cartier yeah i'm pretty sure ah. G- given his own lapses into cajun french or creole french or whatever Okay. Tell me if you disagree with me here. This issue is a very extended and very tortured way to get Donna a boyfriend. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a... In, in particular, one who has some fascination with the same voodoo stuff that she is already investigating. Yes, which I feel like we already did this with the police lieutenant... In the previous issues. Right. Which, where'd he go again? Uh, he would appear to have disappeared. 
Right, right. Yeah, he he's got uh, werewolf by night girlfriend syndrome. Yeah, I mean, at least we've kept up the police lieutenant and werewolf by night. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Maybe they they were worried he was too similar to that character. Maybe I I could see that. Or maybe you know Donna already has too many older men creeping on her. She needs somebody her own age doing so. That's true. There, some of the panels with Anton and Donna are a little creepy. Yeah, he he definitely seems to have more than a fatherly, uh, surrogately fatherly interest in her. Right. the The physicality between those two is, at best, troubling. Yeah, which otherwise, you know, Anton's a very nice guy. Sure, sure. We should probably talk about Bruce's wife, though. Yeah, Mora's not my favorite. But she also didn't deserve what happened to her. No, she does not. She does not deserve to be melted and then killed by a zombie. It just seems like a weird flex to do to be like, oh... We need a love interest for Donna. Let's give him a wife. And let's right? have the wife die beautifully in front of him. Yeah. Right? That's yeah, that, the ticket. That, it's a weird, weird set of circumstances. If the end result is that this guy and Donna are even just going to be flirty or whatever. like it, It's just a weird chain of events. Like, I suppose they could do the thing where, you know, he... He can't be with her because he's still tortured to the memory of poor Mora. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see, but it's weird. The other thing that stood out to me in the first few pages is it seems to me like Simon Garth and Ted Salas are competing to see who can get in the most fights with giant snakes and gators. Okay, I have a problem with the snake. Oh, yes. I think I know what this problem is going to be, but go ahead. Is it a constrictor, or is it venomous? Because yes. you don't get both. Well, Simon got both. And again, this thing is way too big. Right. To be... No, it, to be venomous instead of a constrictor. Yes. Because you only get he's... that size if its primary way of killing is constricting. Yes. Like, take it from somebody who really hates snakes. <laughs> I know a lot about them. Partially but because yeah, I because, really hate them. But the, the first thing that's mentioned are the venom-laden fangs. Yes. But which... then it immediately wraps around him and starts constricting. Yeah. Uh, so you lock your stiffened fingers about the constrictor's neck. But he's not a constrictor. He's a viper. Right, because he had venom-laden fangs. Yes. So, uh, that is a failing of Steve Gerber. Yes. Who like, did not do research into how snakes attack. No. Like, venomous snakes do not go after prey that large. Right. The only way that a venomous snake could go after Simon Garth is if he was was near him unwittingly and simon garth had just been standing there right you don't get bitten by a, like a rattlesnake just by standing there right you get bitten by a rattlesnake by traipsing through the freaking woods or whatever and coming upon its nest or whatever it's just like right. 
Sorry. This has been a National Geographic production. <laughs> uh, the other thing that stands out to me in this segment is we have a Gerberism here. Oh? Which is that we get a half page not set where the rest of the story is showing a person we don't know finding the other voodoo talisman and then we're told we'll find out more about that later. Which, you know, got on our nerves on Man-Thing, but it actually did pay off later. It did, it did. But that's, I, I've decided that that's just a Gerberism, that he will set things up in a panel or two and then not come back to them for a while. Yeah, which I should probably point out, and it's somewhat surprising for me, that this is the first issue of Tales of the Zombie that doesn't continue in the last story in the magazine. Yeah. Yeah, we do not have an ongoing segment. This is a one-and-done story. Yeah, which I could have seen a situation where, like, you know, we get this story in the beginning, and then we revisit the characters again in the last story. Right, pay off some of the consequences of those last few pages. Yeah, and that's one of the things we liked about uh, Tales of the Zombie before. Right. That there was, was some continuity across the magazine. Yeah, it was the most consistent of the Black Boy mags. My only thought as to why that might not have happened is Gerber had a lot on his plate at this point. So you're thinking they're holding that second story for issue three? I, I think Four. so. I think, to, I think to give him time to work on it. Because at this point, around this point at least... Gerber had multiple titles going because um, he was doing. Uh, he was man he thing. was working on he was working on all of the Bill Everett creations. So he was working on Namor at this time. He was about to start Namor, I think. I think he had just taken over Daredevil. Um, really? Yeah. So this is actually from later in the issue, but the the Tales of the Zombie feature page has a brief autobiographical column written by. Uh, Steve Gerber himself. Okay. And he points out that in addition to Man-Thing, he's currently writing all three of the late Bill Everett's presently running Marvel creations, Submariner, the Zombie, and Daredevil. Oh, wow. Okay. So I have Steve Gerber, Daredevil look forward to in my Marvel read-through at some point. That's good. You do. Yeah, like early 70s, yeah. Okay. Because there's a point there where Daredevil apparently just becomes a slog to read, and I thought it was all the way to Frank Miller. So it's nice that there's something to look forward to. There's some there good well. stuff before Miller. Uh, okay. Because I, I, I know the stuff where he moves West Coast, some of that's pretty good. Where he's teamed with Black Widow. Yeah. But but between that and Miller, I'm less familiar with. I guess Gerber took over somewhere in there, though. Interesting. I knew he took over Defenders at one point. Mm-hmm. Which, that certainly fits his sensibilities. Yeah. And, of course, we do get things like Howard the Duck in uh, Defenders because right, of that. Right, So, needless okay. to say, I, I, could, I would offer that as a suggestion as to why maybe there are not two Gerber-written zombie segments in this magazine, and it's because of all the other stuff on his plate. That does make sense, actually. There's also some nice panel work on page 12. Oh yeah, I I noted that panel too. That's the one where with the panel shaped like a telephone. Yes. 
Where right. I so there's a getting... phone. There's a there's a phone conversation, and the two guys talking on the phone are in a panel that separates them by making them the two ends of the receiver. It, it's a cute little thing, and even like Anton sitting at his desk while on the phone conversation kind of completes the shape of the phone. Right. It makes the receiver. Yeah. Yeah. Or not the receiver. The it makes the base. The cradle. The cradle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. It's Yeah. Like I say, that Pablo Marcos art is good stuff. And I think we're getting some very interesting panel work in these black and white magazines, and I don't think we've mentioned it enough. Like, some of these uh, Dracula's panels are just gorgeous, gorgeous work. Right. And even when what we've got is just a grid, it's never like a symmetrical, like a nine-panel grid or whatever. Or even like a, a six-panel grid. Like, it's always different sizes and shapes with images bleeding through the gutter and things like that. It it really shows that they are trying to make these black and white productions really high-quality stuff. Right. And even on the next page, 13, which is where we find out, for the first time, I think, that zombies still have to eat, the, the layout work on it is really good, up to and including where on the last panel where you finally, where, where you get the zombie taking a bite out of the snake, and suddenly what you have is a negative space silhouette, a white silhouette. Yeah. Not Although, because they have to. Like, it, it's, it's not out of censorship or anything, because it's a magazine, but because it's artistically interesting. Yes. And I actually would argue, because your, your mind is filling in a blank there... It might be a little more gruesome. Oh, absolutely! It, I, it, I totally it, it, agree. It gives you just enough hints to be like, Ugh. yeah, and that weird, like, noisy background looks almost like snake skin or something. But it, but it also sort of reminds me of some of the photo montage stuff that Kirby used to do. Okay, I can see that. But anyway, long, long story short, the art in this, this segment's gorgeous. Yeah. Now, and I'll point this out when we get to our, our coverage of Dracula, there are places where the fact that the art is so great here makes parts where it's not great really stand out. But we'll get to that when we get to Dracula. Sure, yeah. So, again, another great chapter in the saga of Simon Garth. I look forward to seeing where else this goes with this, because I know this this series is not as long-lived as some of the other ones we'll talk about, although it's probably more long-lived than, say, like Brother Voodoo, who will be joining Simon Garth in this book eventually. Right, and, yeah, I think, I think Tales of the Zombie is only, like, ten issues. Okay. Maybe 10 issues in an annual, something like that. 10 or 11 issues. Yeah. Although, we do get our first mail page in this right. issue. Where, basically, people say exactly what we've been thinking. Like, the Bill Everett stuff is great. From This is, this is going back to the first issue. The Bill Everett stuff is great, and the stuff they built on it was great as well. Right. The Bill Everett stuff was a great foundation, and the way they built onto it is was a lot of fun. And, of course, they kind of bemoaned the death of Bill Everett, who apparently died before the first issue of Tales of the Zombie came out, although not before it went to the printer, apparently. Right, right. 
The other thing that's striking about the letters page is, and I've never seen this before in any of the mags, which I guess this is our first letters page, so that may be why, but there's a reader's poll where they rate the the stories from, I guess, the first issue. Yeah, from Tales of the Zombie number one. Yeah, they want to see which one you like the most. Right, well, this this actually gives us the ranking from those. So I guess they had solicited that sometime between the first issue and this one. That or they made it up. Sometimes they just made up stuff like this for the letters pages. Oh, but. yeah, okay. So so tail, the zombie trilogy uh, with the Everett stuff and Night of the Walking Dead and Zombie was, yeah, okay, that was number one. Then the thing from the bog, which we all thought was kind of a snoozer. And then the rest of the stuff, which we just kind of like, eh, about. Right, right. And, and that, that, that Tony Isabello story ended up at the bottom unfortunately for tony i guess so i want i I am curious if they're going to continue that because that's actually kind of a cool thing for the magazines with with all these anthology stories to to actually whether it's real or not to give some sense of how people are responding to them like that so it is interesting to see where readers rated these although it isn't that surprising considering it's very similar to where we rate them Pretty close, yeah. The other thing that I will point out about the letters column is just how much I appreciate the name of it, Males to the Zombie. I didn't even notice that. Oh, God. <laughs> Although it should be Males of the Zombie, shouldn't it? Come on now. Well, right, but it's they're, ma- they're males that are being sent to the zombie. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> So after that, we actually get something different for the Black Away magazines. We get a text story. First of two parts, even. Right, where basically a, I believe an American uh, tourist is trying to locate her brother uh, with the help of the Haitian police department. And of course, is the police detective looking into this. Um, how do you say that name? Duro? Dur- uh, where is it? You can tell I failed French. Well, yeah. I never studied French, so I'm I'm making this up as I go. But I took pretty three sure, years. Pretty sure, pretty sure it's Duro. Duro is kind of giving her the lowdown on the voodoo scene on, in town, and she's kind of scoffing at it. And then Satan appears. <laughs> basically, the, the 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 voodoo equivalent of Satan appears, and it's like things are gonna get worse from here. To be continued. Yeah, also, Dambala, the Serpent God, gets name-dropped. We've encountered him in Brother Voodoo. Yeah. But yeah, this is a fun little uh, text piece of fiction by uh, Chris Claremont. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to that guy. No, no. Certainly didn't he, change he sort the face of, of uh, comic books. He, he faded into obscurity from all these magazine segments, I think. Yeah. Although I do like that it has like a voodoo noir feel to it. Yeah, the the blending a detective story kind of thing is an interesting twist. Yeah, it was really quite enjoyable. And I definitely got, like, I've talked before about my love of the setting Deadlands. Right. And there is a Deadlands noir, which takes the setting into the 1920s and 30s. Which I definitely got that, that vibe here. And of course, that book does cover voodoo because it's set in 1930s new orleans 
it's honestly surprising to me that we, that you don't get more of that kind of thing because like the classic voodoo zombie stories like white zombie and i walked with a zombie came out of the same 1930s and 40s period that like the heyday of the film noir detective stories were happening i think part of it is they didn't get the idea of blending genres back in the day and i'm just saying i'm just saying now like like as as sort of genre hybrid stuff like i would expect to see more of that in terms of people doing stuff set in that time period. I actually think it's because they're afraid of being culturally insensitive. Fair. That's fair. It's a tricky thing to pull off. Like, it's it's hard to do a movie about voodoo that isn't, uh, you know, white people clutching at pearls. Right, right. And, and demonizing the beliefs of all of the people of color in the story. Yeah. Yes. Although, no, I, I get that. Yeah. Although our next story in the book actually isn't a voodoo story. No. No, it's actually Warrior's Burden, which is set in feudal Japan. Right, uh, right uh, on this one. For, for those of you following along, uh, we're skipping over net result because that's a reprint. Yeah, definite reprint. So we have Warrior's Burden. Writer is Tony Isabella. Artist and inker is Vincent Alcazar. Editor is Roy Thomas. In feudal Japan, a father summons an ancient unliving warrior to rescue his daughter, who has been kidnapped by a dragon. Only then will the father allow the warrior to return to the oblivious sleep which he desires. As the warrior defeats the dragon, however, he realizes that it and the daughter were one the same, all, it, all of it having been the result of the dragon's illusionary powers as they both die together, finding the peace that only death can bring. So, yeah, that was a, it was a short story. It's, it is, it's, it's fun. It's, it's good. It's, I feel like the connection to zombie is a little forced in this one. Yeah, because he references, like, say, being like Gilgamesh in a previous life. And right. I'm like, is it the same body? Is it a spirit? It seems more almost like a, a ghost at certain points. Right, right. There's, there's... It almost sounds sort of like the, the old, uh, the, the DC idea of Resurrection Man. Yeah. I, I remember him, vaguely. Yeah, the weirdly, he came back during the New Fifty Two. He had his own book for yes, a he did. while. Um, I'll never forget Resurrection Man because he's one of the few superheroes who was originally from South Carolina. Oh God, he is. Oh, <laughs> oh wow, is it Gaffney? Viceroy, South Carolina. So a fictional town. Looks like okay. It. That's fine. So we can't go visit the the hometown of. Uh, Resurrection Man anytime soon. No, I don't believe no. so. But, anyway, similar concept of, like, dying and being reborn and sort of being cursed with sort of the ongoing battles of his lives. Yeah. Um, this is another Tony Isabella story that 
like I say, only sort of tangentially fits into what's going on in the rest of the magazine. Yeah. That seems to be his calling card right now in these magazines. <laughs> they basically say, Tony, we need it to be this, this, and this. And it's like, okay. And then, you know, a few days later. Or it's almost like it's almost like he's pitching these stories and they're just finding places to fit them in. I could see that. I don't know. It could be either way, really. Yeah. But I think the art's good. Gorgeous art. Yeah. It just... And it has a very, it has a very different look from the, the Simon Garth story, as befits its change in time period and yes. setting. Yes. It's kind of refreshing, actually, that we're not getting another voodoo zombie story. Sure. And, and the design the design of the dragon yeah, is pretty cool. Not your standard European dragon, right? Okay, is it just the girl who's an illusion of the dragon, or is it like the father who brought him back an illusion of the dragon as well? Well, because like if if the father exists, then the girl has to exist too, right? But like, unless that whole conversation is like part of the vision that draws him in yes like that's what i'm saying is that whole conversation part of the vision and if so does that mean the dragon brought the warrior to life so that the warrior could kill the dragon right i don't know i i guess it has to be i feel like you and i don't smoke enough weed to understand this story and that we don't smoke any. <laughs> we we have reached we we have reached that era of yes, bullshit. Oh god. <laughs> Readers who partake, please tell us if the story made sense to you. <laughs> uh, not that I dislike it, but it it raises yes, so many it... questions. And being a short story, it will never answer no, those questions for me. Although it's interesting that we get a non-voodoo zombie story because of course the next article in here is a uh, look at the most famous occurrence of non-voodoo zombies, the George Romero Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, which um, which Night of the Living Dead released to theaters in the late 60s. So this is not a contemporary review. It's sort of looking back on Yeah, the at least a few years back. Maybe like five years later or something like that. Yeah, it was like 68, I think, was when Night of the Living Dead first came out, so... Yeah. Yeah. And and you know they they call out some of the same things that that we still talk about about the movie. The decision to cast an African American protagonist, the way in which it's low budget makes it even scarier because of how immediate and realistic things often seem. The sort of documentary style of it. I do find it interesting they they talk about you know, it having kind of cult status, and this is before it became like one of the rock stars of horror, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's early enough that it's not it's not gotten that reputation of being that movie that is always on television, always available in the dollar bin because it's public domain, and so everyone can make a copy of it. Yeah, this is before we even get a, a remake of the film. Yeah, because well, the remake's not until nineteen ninety. Yeah. That's that's way off. So and this is we're we're at seventy three still, so 
this is well before Dawn of the Dead happens. That's not until 78, I think. So at this point, it, it's considered a one-and-done horror movie. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of... It's interesting to see them looking back on the movie from fairly close to when it came out. And then they and they compare it and they compare it to a Mario Bava Italian horror movie, uh, Carnage, which most people know as Twitch of the Death Nerve, or don't know about it at all, like me. <laughs> but but yeah, it's an interesting little uh, little. Article. It's interesting to see how the movie's fandom has evolved since I guess contemporary time to the modern day. Where we're 50 years out, and it's, again, like we said, because they're in the monoliths of modern horror. Yeah. But it's also interesting that, for this time period, a retrospective article like this has to be mostly plot summary. Because you can't count on your audience to have seen the movie. Because it's it was out in theaters several years ago. Probably hasn't been shown on television yet at this point. I, I'm not sure about when it was first aired on TV. But either way, because home video is not really a thing yet, you have to go through the plot because you can't assume that everyone's seen it. And so this article actually does retell just about the entire plot of the movie from beginning to end. I feel like Chili Billy was the first one to... That sounds right. And probably as a midnight movie or something because of the yeah, content. Of course, Chili Billy is in the movie. He's right, the newscaster. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, like I say, it, it's to me it's just telling of... Whereas now, you would avoid too much talk of especially the ending of the movie. Because you'd want to avoid spoilers. Especially for something, you know, within the last several years like that. But, here, because... You know, how would you go out and see it anyway? True. Unless, like you said, you, you go to one of those midnight shows, or it does appear on some midnight matinee situation. Right, right, right. But the magazine does have lots of good pictures from the movie, too. Like, some really fun stuff. Yes, it does. But that does go ahead and bring us to our last story of this issue. And that is Jalimbi's World. Writer is... Doug Munch, artist and inker is Enrico Badia, editor is Roy Thomas. John Banning recounts to his wife Lucy the story of how weeks before, he and some of his plantation overseers burned down the hut of the voodoo priest Jalimbi, who had been causing unrest among Banning's workers, with Jalimbi inside. Unbeknownst to them, followers of Jalimbi of a different sort stalked the plantation house. Zombies. The undead burst into the house, pursuing the wealthy couple upstairs. John Banning is able to stave off the attack with his rifle, but the real damage has been done. Lucy's mind has been broken by the encounter, remaining in a vegetative state until her death some ten years later. Upon her death, Banning hauls her occupied coffin back to the now rebuilt hut and begs Jalimbi to return his wife to life. The horribly burned voodoo priest advised the plantation owner that a zombie bride 
would be no better than the vegetable he had lived with the past decade, and that there is only one way to truly reunite with his wife. Taking the hint, Banning takes a revolver, disappears into the woods, and is followed shortly afterwards by a single, solitary bang. Hmm. I mean, it's it's nice. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the visuals are great. Visuals are great. I would have preferred a Simon Garth story. Yeah, yeah. It's I wanted to like this more than I did, mainly because it's a Doug Munch story. Yes. But but you can I mean, it's also a very 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 early Doug Munch story. Yes. He just joined Marvel in 73. Yep. Also, it's dripping with imperialism. It is. It really is. Colonialism, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, it, not great. No, it's... It's a gorgeous story. I felt bad for the wife. I even feel bad for the husband a little bit. Although... Again, it's it's a woman being punished for the sins of her husband. Which is not great. No. <sighs> um, fun fact, the artist, uh, Enrique Badia... Yeah? Uh, ...worked for years on uh, the Modesty Blaze comic strip. Oh. Nice. From like 70 to 78. Okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I think my favorite thing about this one is the art. Uh, it's got some really great uh, zombie designs in it. Yeah. Like, I, I really like the ones that are sort of decayed to the point of being skeletal. Yes, those are very nice. But if you had to say what your favorite story in the book was, what would you say it is? Oh, the Simon Garth story, by far. Oh yeah, it's definitely Simon Garth. And, and part of that is because it's part of an ongoing feature, and so it feels like a bigger story, because you know there's going to be more of it. Yeah. And you already have some attachment from what, what we've already gotten. But part of it is just, it's more compelling, it's more interesting. Yeah, I agree. So... I mean, it is the anchor of the book, and and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that being the best. If you're if the anchor of the book is not the best story, you got a problem. I agree. So let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Tuma Dracula. Or Dracula Sorry. lives. Excuse me. We'll be we'll be right back with Dracula lives number four. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give Me That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes.
Saturday at 1.30. See lots of familiar faces in the house that drips blood. Take a look at him right now. Do you know this man? Oh, don't put that on. You're turning to a vampire. He was the third Doctor Who. <laughs> Who? We love your film so much. We wanted you to become one of us forever. Welcome to the club. Yes, join her Saturday at 1.30 for The House That Dripped Lady Fingers. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. We are kicking off Dracula Lives number four, covered date January 1974 with the first story, titled Fear Stalker. Written by Marv Wolfman, art by Mike Plug, inks by Ernie Chan, letters by John Costanza, the editor is Roy Thomas. We open in Hollywood as fading star Louis Belsky reviews footage of the fangs of Dracula, his intended comeback vehicle, with the film's producer, Magruder. While Belsky is enthusiastic, Magruder is dismissive both of the film and the actor. Belsky storms away to his dressing room, grumbling that an actor of his caliber deserves more respect. As Belsky drowns his sorrows in whiskey, Dracula arrives in bat form, having traveled very far to find this pitiful man. That night, just as Magruder threatens and assaults the young actress from the Dracula movie, a drunk Belsky in full Dracula getup interrupts the producer and insisting that he is Dracula, throws the creepy producer against a wall, killing him instantly. The actress accuses him of murder, causing the actor to turn on her as well. When he tries to bite her, however, he is unable to break the skin of her neck. Panicked, he runs away just as two other men arrive to help. Belsky retreats to his dressing room for more whiskey, when the real Dracula reveals himself. The Lord of Vampires is furious that this failing actor has blemished the name of Dracula. Disbelieving the vampire's story, and thinking he has been sent by the studio to intimidating him, to intimidate him. Belsky draws a pistol and fires at the Count. Dracula disappears, and the studio is shut down as a manhunt for the killer begins. A week later, Belsky still hasn't been found, as the actress and her new boyfriend, Gary Stone, sneak back onto the set. They are shocked to find one of the studio workers murdered, when Belsky emerges once again claiming to be Dracula. Confronting the actress, he rages that women never found him to be as attractive as the other horror actors. Just then, the real Dracula emerges, and once again deems Belsky unworthy of using his name. Dracula drains the actress of blood, then sets his sights on Belsky. Three nights later, Gary Stone is called to the morgue to identify his girlfriend's body. As he leaves, she and Belsky both awaken in undeath with Gary and the Doctor as their first victims. Magruder! <laughs> it's, it's... I really like this story. It's fun. It's, it's not the Dracula story I expected it to be, but it's fun. No. It, it very much reminds... I love stories like this to kind of take a look at Hollywood like from behind the scenes it's very meta mm -hmm. uh, but I've, it very much reminds me of if you've ever seen the Animus anthology film The House That Drip Blood yep yep 
yeah, there's the John Pertwee segment of that. Right. Where he plays a actor famous for playing vampires in horror films. Yep. And of course, at the end, it's revealed that vampires are such big fans of his that they want him to become one. Right, right. Which is easily the best story in that film. It's a really good one, yeah. A film that also stars Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, although in different stories. Yes. But of course, in that one, it's John Pertwee, famous for Doctor Who. Right, and and of course, uh, there's a little bit of a dig at Christopher Lee in the Pertwee segment, because Pertwee's character says that he prefers Bela Lugosi's Dracula over the chap who plays him now. Oh, does he? I've forgotten that. Yeah, there's a bit where Pertwee actually says... Pertwee's character basically says he doesn't like Christopher Lee's Dracula. Nice. That's, but yeah, that's this fun. is a it, this is a fun segment. It's a better it's a better use of a Hollywood studio setting than the was it Werewolf by Night that took yeah. place on a studio. Yeah, yeah, this is better than that by a lot. Yeah, although it's a little bit funny that, you know, somebody, apparently somebody can hide from the police after murdering someone on a movie set. Well, and and although their justification is sort of the Phantom of the Opera argument, that he had been working at that studio basically since it opened. And so he knew all the nooks and crannies and, and hidden compartments. Yeah, that does make sense. So uh, I, also in, I also enjoy the design of Belsky, the actor, he has a little bit of an aging Vincent Price look. I can see that. But a little more drunk? Well, yes, yes. It's not an exact caricature, but but in terms of the the facial structure, I think there's a little bit of Vincent Price there. Maybe a little Peter Cushing, too. Yeah. And I guess the... Uh, the actor boyfriend guy is supposed to be kind of like a Steve McQueen type. Seems like it. Like that sort of like go get him action hero kind of guy. Yeah. Who, of course, is a total coward. Yeah. It is interesting to see Mike Plug handle Dracula. It is. And again, he's Dracula is almost a cameo in this story. He's not a, ma- a main character, really. Like... I really would have kind of liked Dracula to appear have appeared less than he does in the story, mm-hmm. just so he can appear at the end and like then convert the actor and of course the actress as well. Yeah, I really the his appearance in the middle when he first confronts Belsky is almost unnecessary. Yes, because everything he says there he just sort of repeats again at the end. And I'm wondering if it maybe. They're trying to suggest it might be just in his mind. Mm-hmm. But it's a fun story. I I liked it. Of course, we also get a letter column in this issue. Yes. Which, uh, again, mo- people talking about their reaction to uh, Tomb of Dracula. Sorry, Dracula Lives, number two. And we have another reader's poll. Yep. Uh, Club talks about that Dracula may live again being their favorite story from Dra- Tomb of Dracula. Sorry, Dracula lives number two. Yep, and that's the the Wolfman Neil Adams story. Yeah, 
the one that was just which freaking I mean, gorgeous. if your magazine has a Marv Wolfman Neil Adams story in it, it is the number one story. Like, there's just no question. Yes, and then they <laughs> that's just rank, the way it works. They rank the second one as the terror that stalked Castle Dracula, which is the Dracula versus Nazis story. Yeah, which that one's fun. That one, I think we liked that one mostly. Yeah. And then there's uh, The Voodoo Queen of New Orleans by Roy Thomas. And of course, that's our first appearance of Simon Garth. Right. In that brief cameo. Yep. And then there's the text piece, and then there's the reprint, and then there's the the other reprint. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's basically the order that, that we would have picked, I think. Yeah. Most people are just praising the neil adams story and saying how great it was and how they need more marv wolfman writing dracula which we can agree with now there is a, a segment here and was, they had this in the tales of the zombie issue as well where they they pull out one letter to kind of highlight as the reader's forum letter right and i'll just go and read it we think we've pretty well defined a character Dracula as presented in our stories, but we've always interested in reading other interpretation. Here's one that came in recently. Dear Roy, Marv, and Jean, I'm very happy to see the popularity of the Dracula book and your explanation in the black and white line. Although Dracula Lives has been a good series, a good magazine so far, I prefer it to concern itself with earlier accounts of the Count's career rather than the present-day exploits, leaving that to the four-colored comic instead. This would help maintain the continuity between two books, rather than trying to tie in what's occurring in the book, sorry, in the comic, with the present-day account of Dracula and Dracula Lives. The origin story in the second issue of the magazine was an excellent help clear up in my mind what it was that originally motivated the Count aside from his vampire hunger. It's become evident to me that Dracula has come, at least on the surface, to an acceptance of what he is. He sees he cannot change his fate, and so as with most ordinary people who are born for the handicap, his curse becomes more of an annoyance than as time goes by, and less of a curse, due to the acceptance of it. Dracula was a fearsome creature in life, yet is noble in a warped way. Could he be any less in death, and spend eternity bemoaning his fate? As he himself says... I am Dracula, and that is more than enough for any man. As he was a conqueror in life, so he is in death. Except now he wishes the order of vampires to rule the world, with himself as a chief vampire. I find this a bit of nobility mixed with his animal lust and awesome presence that makes him a human, almost sympathetic figure at times. I hope Marv has more facets of the Count's personality to explore as time goes by. There will possibly be people who will write in and say that you've turned the Count into just another breast-beating, world-enslaving baddie. I disagree. I was, it was only logical for the Count to want to reassume the position he held in life, that of Conqueror, in death. Also, the necessities of the plot will indicate this series would get very boring if issue after issue were spent simply having the Count escape from the clutches of his adversaries in one cliffhanger ending after another. There must be other forces motivating Dracula, and Marv seems to be creating them. Signed, Ralph Macchio. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's not the Karate Kid. No, no, no. This would be... Uh... This would be the Ralph Macchio who ends up joining Marvel in the late 70s. Right. But at this point, he was 
Uh, I believe the term is letter hack. <laughs> yeah, he actually wrote to he wrote to Marvel a lot at this point. So you're saying that if he were around, to, if he were a fan today, he'd be having a podcast. Probably, and, and an active Twitter account, and and all that. Um, he, he probably would have gotten blocked by Dan Slot by now. <laughs> oh. Dan Slot, we love you. Please don't block us. Yes, actually, I picked up Iron Man 2020 just this week. <laughs> but yeah, he McGregor or uh, Machio ends up joining Marvel because Don McGregor gives him a tour of the Marvel offices a little after this. Nice. And then Claremont asked Machio to interview Roy Thomas for Foom. Okay. And so sometime after that, he ends up joining the Black and White magazine line. <laughs> oh, so yeah, where he is here. Right, and so he, he's not there yet, but, but right, right now he's still a fan writing in. But very soon, he will be a presence in Marvel Comics. And then mm. uh, in, I think, 78... He joins Grunwald as co-scripter on Two and One. Nice, but yeah, he he actually has a pretty good read on the character at this point. I agree, and I agree with the part where he says like that Dracula lives should focus more on past stories of the Count, and that Tomb of Dracula should occupy itself with present day stories of the Count. We've said something similar. We have. So. Yeah, to the point where we, we almost felt like the most recent issue of T- Tomb of Dracula that we covered, the one where he's writing his diary, feels like an issue of Dracula Lives. Really does. Yes, totally. Uh, I will point to one other letter here, just because it's another one I kind of sympathize with. And this one is very short. It just says, in future issues of Dracula Lives, why not consider A. A battle between Drac and Jack Russell, Werewolf by Night. B. A pinup page with your various artists' renditions of the Count. C. A battle between Drac and the Frankenstein monster of 73. D. A painted cover of Dracula by Neil Adams. E. A wider variety of artists on the stories. And F. A Frank Frazetta cover. And of course, in the response, they point out that uh, both the Werewolf by Night crossover and the Frankenstein crossover are coming in the main color book. Yeah, we get the Frankenstein crossover this month, actually. Right, and uh, the two-part Dracula werewolf battle is coming, as they say. Yes. The the pinup page, they say, is a definite possibility. The painted cover is was uh, Dracula Lives number three by Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. The they they point out that there are. A fairly wide variety of artists on this issue that we're looking at right now with Plug, Ayers, and Alcazar. Yeah, I was really surprised by Mike Plug's story, but really pleased as well. Yeah, no, we, I mean we are we are Plug fans here in the tomb, and I enjoyed his version of Dracula. Yeah, and, and then and then with the Frazetta cover, they say only time will tell. I don't think we ever get that, but it would have been really cool. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, I think that kind of covers the letters page, though. Agreed. Uh, A.K.A. Dracula Reads. 
So our next piece is In Search of Dracula, A True History of Dracula and Vampire Legends, which is a review of the book of the same name. It's by Claremont, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting sort of summary of the book and its materials, which is basically an examination of the historical Vlad Tepish. So wait, is that picture on the last slide from that uh, Anubis anthology film that isn't Tales from the Crypt? It might be. I I think so. It's not Tales from the Crypt. It's not Asylum. What is it? It's um. It's not Vault of Horror, is it? It's Vault of Horror. Yeah, yeah, Vault of Horror. The one where the guy is trying to track down his sister? Yeah, I think so. Because they've inherited a fortune and he wants to take her out so he can inherit it by himself? Right. And then he find, but he can't because he hasn't found his hasn't seen his sister in years. And he finds out the reason she, he hasn't seen his sister in years is because she's fallen in with a group of vampires. And he finds it out because they make a meal out of him. <laughs> right. right. They hang him. I love it. They hang him upside down and they stick a keg spout into his neck. <laughs> so yes, yeah. I'm fairly certain that's from that that movie. Looks like it. And, you know, as far as the, the text goes, it's fine. It, it's, I think this is our first book review that we've gotten. Quite possible. Although we did get a, basically a film review in the uh, Tales of the Zombie. Right. Right. Uh, but other than that, one thing that I'll note is uh, Claremont's conclusion is that as a book about Dracula, this In Search of Dracula is good, but expensive, at $8.95 for 200 pages. <laughs> oh, inflation, you suck. <laughs> so, anyway, that's the, the In Search of Dracula piece. We've also got Transylvania, Vacation Spot of Europe, which is by Dwight R. Decker, and is yet more discussion of the historical Vlad the Impaler and the way in which then-contemporary Romania was both trying to capitalize economically on the fame of Dracula while also being sort of dismissive of the supernatural elements of the Dracula story. Yeah, weren't they under a fairly oppressive communist government dictatorship at this point? I I believe so, yeah. Like, the, that part of Eastern Europe was... Not a, not a happy place in the 70s, I don't think. No. And then, of course, we have that Dick Ayer story. Right. Uh, that would be the uh, This Blood is Mine. Which, sorry, I'm skipping over the reprint to get to it. Yes, This Blood is Mine. Written by Gardner Fox, pencils and inks by Dick Ayers, and letters by Dick Ayers. In the forests of 17th century Transylvania, a girl flees from the hunting hounds of Countess Elizabeth Bathory while a gigantic bat flies overhead. Bathory's huntsmen arrive just as the bat transforms into Dracula, annoyed that his prey has been stolen from him. Back at the castle, Bathory obsesses over her aging appearance when the girl, a runaway maid, is returned to her. 
Bathory flogs the girl as Dracula in bat form observes through the window. During the assault, some of the girl's blood splashes onto Bathory's face, angering her further. She condemns the girl to death and goes to rest. To Countess Bathory's surprise, her skin appears younger wherever the blood touched her face. Meanwhile, Dracula returns to his coffin unfed and concerned about the Countess who threatens his existence. Bathory begins kidnapping girls, or hiring them as servants, to be bled out in service to her eternal youth. One night, the Countess herself leads a search for more victims when she is confronted by Dracula. He dispatches her men and then bites the Countess herself, draining her blood. However, unlike his other victims, Dracula is unable to control her mentally. Instead, she proposes an alliance that they might share victims. A coffin is prepared for Dracula in Bathory's castle, but during the day, she arranges for his coffin to be covered in garlic, trapping him inside. Weakened, the vampire summons what is left of his powers to become mist and sink through the rotting bottom of the coffin as well as the floor below. In retribution, Dracula steals records of Bathory's victims, including some noblewomen, and sends them to nearby authorities. Bathory is brought to trial and sentenced to be isolated in her castle for the rest of her life. Once confined, Dracula visits her again to claim the blood he is owed. When the jailers arrive the next morning, they find Countess Bathory withered and dead. So I think I'll point out my big problem with this story right away. And of course, that's the Dick Ayer's artwork. It's, it looks dated. It looks dated to the point where I thought this was a reprint. Right, right. It, it, it's not nearly as, I don't know, vivid, l vibrant, alive, I don't know. But it, it, there is a marked difference between this and what we saw from Plug. Well, it's like he's still expecting it to be colored in and the colors to fill in some of the gaps in his artwork. Yeah, and there's just, there's no hatchwork and shading, you know, it's just all very black and white. Yeah. And... There is... Like, I've been reading Dick Ayer's work on another book in my Marvel read-through, uh, Sergeant Fury and His Howling Commandos. And right. there, his artwork is very good. It's not quite Jack Kirby who started the book, but it's you know it's, it does a good job. Sure, and, and I'm sure some of that is that it then gets finished by a colorist. Yes, I think so, and possibly a different inker. Right, right. Which that's that that surprised me here that he penciled, inked, and lettered. Yes, but you're right. It does just seem like a very dated story. I'm also surprised that they wasted. Bathory on a one-and-done story like this. Yeah, she could have been a reoccurring character. Like, I expected her to show up in Tomb of Dracula at some point. Because where she's one of the most famous, I guess, real-life vampires? Ish, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the... I mean, she, she gets sort of shorthanded as Countess Dracula. Yes. It's... It, it does seem like a waste opportunity for her. Right. But, like, you look at, uh, this is page 46, the Dracula's transformation to mist to escape the coffin, and just 
I can imagine a far more interesting and creative version of that panel progression by someone like Plug. Yeah, like the mist of Dracula would create the panels. Right. Well, and there would be more to it than just a more faintly inked Dracula face with some wavy lines around it. Yeah. Oh, well. So, like, the story itself isn't bad. No. It, it It just looks like a story from the 50s. It looks boring. Yeah. Yeah. So, the next feature is about some guy named Marv Wolfman. Yeah. Surely that's not his real name. Yes, Marv Wolfman is his real name. According to the title of the article. <laughs> right, right. And much like the companion piece from Tales of the Zombie, this is a autobiographical feature in which the, the lead writer of the book sort of shares some, some tongue-in-cheek details about his life and, and career. So he mentions that while he was in high school... He became acquainted with fandom via a little ditto-reproduced fanzine called Alter Ego, edited by some guy named Roy Thomas. Whatever happened to that guy, we still don't know. And of course, Roy Thomas is still producing Alter Ego, but of course it's a much glossier affair these days. Sure, sure. Um, I do Um, find it interesting, he talks about how he's currently writing Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, and is about to take over the chores on Submariner. Right, so it's funny, both of the features in this book, the writers mention working on Submariner. Like, who's going to be the writer on Submariner? Is it going to be Gerber or Wolfman? I guess we are at the point of transition from one to the other. Okay. I wonder if Gerber was a fill-in for a while. Hmm. Maybe. Then we have another Um, film review. Yep, so we have a review of The Horror of Dracula, known in England just as Dracula. And this is by yeah, the first uh, one. Jerry, Jerry Bordreau, right? This is the first Hammer Dracula movie with Christopher Lee. I've seen this one. And, yeah, it's good. It's I, I take issue with the review because they refer to it being... fairly faithful to the novel and it is not faithful at all to the novel like at all no it isn't like it is a totally rewritten story like it uses character names and that's about it yeah and dracula and even then it jump even then it jumbles up some of the character names yes like people become sisters become wives and it's just like yeah eh. which is fine that's every almost every dracula movie does that sort of thing but but I took issue with the the review claiming that it had some faithfulness to it. The yeah. only faithful thing about it is that Christopher Lee's interpretation of Dracula is far more faithful to the novel than most others. Yeah. Then, of course, we get another reprint. Uh, right. Uh, then we get an ad for Vampire Tales. Uh, Morbius right, which, Living... I mean, makes sense. Yeah. Morbius the Living Vampire, face-to-face with the full, unleashed power of demon fire. Finally. Right, because we're still doing that cult story there, aren't we? Yes. And then we're yeah. part of Satana, the devil's daughter, now in 
sphere fraught full-length feature of her own. Yep, so we've got the Morbius is going to be a Don McGregor story with Rich Butler, Rich Buckler art. Yep. And then the Satana is being advertised story by Jerry Conway, art by Esteban Moroto. Yep. And then looks like another McGregor story after that. So there's some stuff to look forward to there, maybe. Yeah. Then if, and we talk about uh, Monsters Unleashed, which is going to have feature in issue four, a story with Frankenstein's monster. And yep. the Warriors of Mars. As well as, mm-hmm. yeah, Gulliver Jones. Gulliver Jones, Warriors of Mars. And, of course, yeah. you can get a glow-in-the-dark rubber vampire bat. Oh, only a dollar. Yeah. I, I wonder if that deal is still valid. <laughs> and then we come to our last story of the magazine. Uh, Trey, why don't you tell us about that one? Sure. So this is Look Homeward Vampire, written by Jerry Conway, Pencils and Inks by Vincent Alcazar. In 1459, Dracula arrives at his castle to confront the Turk who has usurped his lands. Meanwhile, the Turk, Count Levka, dismisses any and all rumors of Dracula's continued survival as superstition. Just then, Dracula and his minions confront the Turkish lord. The cowardly man tries to bargain for his life, but the only thing he has which Dracula might desire is blood. As Dracula feeds, other men watching nearby go to find the local priest, Father Borda, for guidance. After they leave Borda, however, he transforms into a bat himself, revealed as a rival of Dracula. Dracula violently reclaims his castle from the Turkish soldiers and consolidates his power by punishing the Transylvanians who aided the Turks. Borda bursts in and confronts Dracula, first as a man of God. However, as Dracula shifts to bat form, Borda transforms into a wolf, and the two begin their battle. Finally, Borda attacks with a wooden stake, throwing it at Dracula's heart. However, one of the women intercepts it and uses it to kill Borda instead, because he allowed the Turks to hang her father. So, again, finally we're getting back to the Dracula origin stuff, which has always been the strongest point of the Dracula Live stories. And we it get a, a interesting vampire-on-vampire conflict between, I guess, Father Bordia and Dracula, although Father Bordia is himself a vampire. Right, and the, the sort of twist is that as a vampire, he maintained his religious fervor, but shifted it from God to Satan. Although it makes me wonder, is, wouldn't people... I'm assuming his church still has, like, you know, a Christian cross in it. Right. That that That's a little confusing. Like, how does he even manage to wear, like, the collar and stuff? I would think that would be difficult. Yeah. So, like, if he is powerful enough to withstand being almost constantly in a room with a cross on the wall, how is he not more powerful than Dracula? Yeah. It's it's interesting. We do get an interesting character here in the form of um, Zavaria. Right, the, the woman. The woman who slays Bor- Bordia. And I actually kind of looked her up on Marvel a- Appendix or whatever to see mm-hmm. like if she shows up again. And 
It doesn't appear that she does. Interesting. Which it, it kind of looks... I mean, she has the look of one of the brides. Yes. And, of course, um, she disip- she exits in the last panel with Dracula's arm around her. Right. Implying that he's going to take her into his confidence, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, something like that. So... It's also interesting that we have two stories here in this magazine of Dracula having to take out a rival in his native land. Neither of the other ones were in his native land, were they? The the Bathory is. Bathory's not in Transylvania. She's just in Europe. I'm pretty sure it said Transylvania at the beginning. Hold on, let me go look. Yeah. A girl flees for her life in the dark, dismal forests of Transylvania. Oh. Okay, the actual Bathory was not in Transylvania. No, no. They they made some changes there. Okay. That's fine, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's actually why I thought it was kind of weird in that story that Bathory, like, offers to set him up with a coffin in her castle. It's like, well, this is Transylvania. He has his own castle. Okay, with Slovakia. So that's fairly close-ish. And it's 17th century, so all of those lines and demarcations are blurry. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so I just think it's interesting that there are two stories in this magazine that have that same general premise of Dracula confronting a rival in and around his his homeland. Yeah. But... It's a fun story. Yeah, yeah. And I do enjoy this version of, I guess we might call it younger Dracula. Young Dracula. I was a teenage Dracula. (laughs) It's, I, I do like the Warlord Dracula stories. They are fun. You know, it gives him a chance to just have a bare chested Dracula fighting people. Although he's starting to gain some of the accoutrements, like the cape here. Right, right. And and he's... I, I really like this this large panel of him bare-chested with the cape and his hair kind of wild and his fist raised in the air. Yes. Uh, this is on page 68. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah. That's a great image. Yeah, it, it is. He's a vampire! Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah the the uh, the art here by uh, by Alcazar is different from Plug, but but effective in its own way. Yes, yeah, definitely more photorealistic than Plug. It is. I really like some of the work with the the animals, the bats and wolves and stuff. Like those look really cool. Yeah. It, it it's good stuff. It's a good way to end the issue. Yeah, and it's very much in keeping stylistically with the other origin stories we've got in this magazine. Yeah. So, of these stories in this magazine, which ones do you say is your favorite? Uh, I probably had the most fun with the first one, the the Hollywood story. Yeah, the Plug thing, because it's it is kind of a love letter to Hollywood horror, as it were, 
and you know the it name drops Lugosi and Lee and uh, Carradine. So yeah, I I do have to say I also just enjoy the idea that Dracula keeps up with his uh, with his pop culture representation. Yeah, like that like that's something he cares about on sort of a vain level. Well, you know he likes to sneak into a midnight showing and snack on some of the other viewers while he watches. <laughs> He, he, he picks up an usher at the concession stand. And, of course, we have advertised at the end of this issue that we will finally, after some delay, be getting to Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Fingers crossed. Right, which which will go unfinished in Dracula Lives. I... The, book will be can- the book will be canceled before they finish that adaptation, I think. Of course it is. They, it does it does get finished. It's been published as a single volume by itself. We also are promised Dracula versus Cagliostro in the France of Marie Antoinette. That's just a lot. Yeah. That's a lot being promised in Dracula is number four. So, wait. Yep. Dracula is number, number five. Number five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it was a good issue. It was, it was, again, Dracula lives and Tales of the Zombie both stand out to me as perhaps the most consistent monster mags. Yeah. Although, speaking of things to look forward to, we do have the issues we're going to talk about next time on Tomb of Ideas. Yeah. We are going to be covering Marvel Spotlight number 13, a return to Damien Hellstrom. Man-Thing number one the swampy hero himself appearing in his very own titled magazine and marvel two in one number one speaking of things that we know and love appearing in their own magazine this is of course the thing from the fantastic four and he will be appearing in his first issue with that swampy guy we love man thing so uh, a double dose of man thing there that's exciting yeah Double your man things, double your fun. <laughs> but but we're not giant size yet. No. No. Why would you even bring that up? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, but, of course, if you want to share, share with us your thoughts on man things or uh, Dracula's or any of the other topics we've talked about in this issue, or if you want to respond to that YouTube video we put together, you can, of course, always do so. It's Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. You can reach us out to us on Twitter at Tomb of Ideas. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And of course, we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcast group. Right. And so you can find all of our episodes at your podcatcher of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or anywhere else, but we're also happy to have our home at Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X, where you can also find other great shows like The Flight Stuff, an Alpha Flight podcast, the main Cinepunks podcast, Horror Business, and actually, Liam O'Donnell and Doug Tilly of both Flight Stuff and other Cinepunks-related stuff, have just launched a brand new podcast. First episode just dropped. Part of a sort of sub-brand they've launched called Cinema Smorgasbord. And the first show to launch out of that Cinema Smorgasbord brand is called We Do Our Own Stunts, 
and it is a Jackie Chan podcast where they're watching the filmography of actor-director stuntman Jackie Chan. And that's at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Ooh, I really need to watch more Jackie Chan movies. Well, hey, you could watch along with Liam and Doug. Yeah, I could. And hey, so could you, dear listener. So, I think that about wraps it up for this installment of Tomb of Ideas. So we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior. <laughs>